0: What up, family? Welcome to episode 127 of The Genius Life. That's it. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods and The Genius Life. On this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to Dr. Ailey Cohen. Dr. Cohen is a board-certified rheumatologist and integrative medicine specialist, and she is also incredibly passionate about environmental health. She's based out of Princeton, New Jersey. She has collaborated in the past with the Environmental Working Group, the organization Cancer Schmancer, and she's also the co-editor of the textbook Integrative and Environmental medicine, which is part of Oxford University Press's Weill Integrative Medicine Library. In 2015, she created the smarthuman.com to share environmental health, disease prevention, and wellness information with the public. She is a TEDx speaker, and she is also the author of the brand new book, Non-Toxic: Guide to Living Healthy in a Chemical World. On this episode of the show, we are going to go deep into All aspects of environmental toxicity to reveal the areas of your life where you may be exposed to known toxicants. Um, And I think what is different about this episode versus other episodes in the past where I've talked about environmental toxins is that the prescription that Dr. Cohen offers is going to be highly actionable and achievable. Ailey is super passionate about um, taking her learnings and making it, uh, giving practical recommendations to. to people. That's really what it's all about. And we also focus heavily in this episode on water, which is a pretty important topic, seeing as how you're comprised of 70 some odd percent of it. So, Strop in your seatbelts, saddle up, and get ready for a fascinating chat that I know you're going to want to come back to again and again, and you might even be compelled to share with your friends and loved ones. Before we dive in, this episode is sponsored by my good friends at Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic are the purveyor of some of the finest medicinal mushroom products in all the land. If you want to start your day with clarity and focus, you should definitely consider checking out their Lion's Mane-infused coffee. All of their coffees are freeze-dried and organic. Coffee is one of the most chemically Sprayed products on the planet, speaking of industrial chemicals. And what they do is they combine their coffee with lion's mane, which is a delicious mushroom that has been suggested in the medical literature to possess cognition boosting properties. And that combined with the coffee and the sort of microdose of caffeine that you get in their coffee, I think makes for a wonderful morning um, with crystal clear focus and clarity and uh does not usually give me the jitters which is great because that's one of my least favorite aspects of consuming coffee is when you drink too much of it you get the jitters but um i happen to love four sigmatic uh all of their products really if you'd like to try anything that four sigmatic has to offer all you got to do is go to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you'll get to save 10 percent off of anything in their online store i recommend if you're just dipping your toe for the first time into the medicinal mushroom pool check out their Lion's Mane infused coffee. Also, I'm a big fan of their Reishi. Uh, either Reishi or Lion's Mane, you can't really go wrong. And if you don't drink coffee, they also have a Lion's Mane elixir without the caffeine. So you get that focused buzz, but without the coffee. So um, check them out, forSigmatic.com slash max, promo code max, save 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley make the most tasty beef sticks That I've ever had, 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. I routinely snack on these. They are so balanced in their flavor profile. They're naturally fermented. Um, They've got just enough kick without being too spicy, and they pack a nutritional wallop. Considering the fact that all of their beef comes from cows that have been 100% grass-finished, and of course grass-fed. And so you know that I'm a huge fan. I am a huge fan of grass-fed beef, and they make it so tasty and so convenient and whenever people come over to my house actually because they've sent me so many of their beef sticks I offer them to guests and my guests are always such big fans of their beef sticks that they generally will go and place an order for them on the spot because they're that good I'm not just saying this I mean you guys know that I only allow brands to sponsor the podcast that I am genuinely a fan of so if you are a meat consumer and you like the idea of having beef snacks around to throw in your bag, to keep in your car, check out paleovalley.com slash max, and you'll get to save 15% off of everything in their online store. That is paleovalley.com slash max, and you'll get to save 15% off. Highly recommend checking them out. (laughs) All right, guys, we're just seconds away from my chat with Ailey Cohen talking all things environmental toxicity. You are going to be shocked to learn the common hiding places of some of these everyday industrial chemicals that we are routinely exposed to. And I'm just so excited to have somebody who's really not just thought about the public health implications of these chemicals. Chemicals, but also ways to um, give everyday average people who don't have a ton of money really practical and achievable ways of um, reducing their exposure to these chemicals. Because just you know the awareness of them can only get you so far. You need to actually take the steps and make the changes in your life to get healthier. And that's what Ailey offers. And that's what I'm excited for you to listen to. But before we get to the show, guys, please take a moment to join my newsletter. You can do that by going to maxlugavere.com, which is just my name, max, L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E.com. And by entering your first name and your email address, every week or so, I send out really important information, whether it is, you know, can't miss episodes of the show, Exclusive discounts to products that um, I think should be on your radar uh, or science that I think you ought to know about, breaking updates about nutritional health and the like. Do not miss this opportunity to join my newsletter. And just for signing up at maxlugavere.com, I'm going to send you a PDF guide of 12 supplements that you can use to potentially boost your brain function. So, this is a PDF sort of ebook that I've created with 12 supplements and my take on each of them. They include some of the Uh, usual suspects like um, fish oil and vitamin D, but uh, 10 others that um, may be surprising to you. So head over to maxlugavir.com, Join my newsletter. You can opt out at any time. Your privacy is 100% respected. I do not give your information out to anybody else. Um, I promise I don't spam ever. And I would love to connect with you over there. So do that. You can also join my text message community. Uh, by texting 310 the word genius and you'll be a part of that and you'll get 360 degrees of max in your life I mean what's not to love about that right if you're on this genius train and you're a true genius then you got to be on all the things you got to be on all the things because we've got some really exciting things coming up um, for fans of the show and I just can't wait to let you know about them and so you know the people that are on the newsletter the people that are on the text message community they're going to get to find out first so you want to be on board All right, guys. Well, that's enough housekeeping for now. I am very excited to chat with Dr. Cohen. I'm pumped for you to listen to it. So here we go. I remember doing the 23andMe test and finding out that I was like one point away from average in terms of how much Neanderthal I had in me. I was like just under what the average is. And I remember feeling kind of good about that. That was a that was a smug day for me. I was like, I'm no joke. I actually, this is how big of a nerd I am. I did actually put that on my dating profile at the time that I was like, uh,
1: no joke. I saw that that would be a huge selling point.
0: Really? Well, cause we're nerds. You would have,
1: weeded out, half, you would have ha- weeded out half of the nonsense with just that information.
0: Well, I think this is a good place to start the podcast. Um, I am super excited to have you on uh Ailey Cohen. Yeah. This is a, a pleasure and you talk regularly. I've heard you on a bunch of other big podcasts about a topic that I've become really passionate about. Um and so I'm I'm excited to do a deep dive with you into all things environmental toxins and endocrine disrupting chemicals and the quality of our water and this is an area where you've done a um you know a a, a quite rigorous amount of research and um you know, efforts towards public education. But before we before we get into it, uh, why don't you just give us a little bit of a sense um in terms of your background? You're a rheumatologist by training. Um, what is that for listeners who don't know?
1: I'm trying to figure that out myself. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, you know, rheumatology is a specialty off of internal medicine. So just like cardiology, pulmonology, um, you know. Uh, any any number of specialties, it is a specialty that primarily focuses, it's, it's evolved over the years, but it's, it's primarily, um, it started off as sort of the study of joints. Um, and so anything that was joint related, specifically what you would think of as osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, um, but it has evolved into infectious diseases that involve joints like Lyme disease, um, crystal uh, arthropathies, which are like gout, if anyone sort of gout Um, so those things that cause, um, joint issues, um, also, um, you know, other autoimmune diseases such as lupus, polymyalgia, rheumatica. So it's kind of expanded and there's definitely turf overlap with other specialties, but that's, um, primarily what, what, what we take care of.
0: So Richard, why do you go into that?
1: Great question. I think with everything, I think most doctors might, might even think that it has to do with who your mentors are what your exposure was in internal medicine what kind of patient care you know patient load you had um i had great mentors and um and i just loved them so i would have followed them probably to the end of the earth
0: so how did you then go from that to becoming interested in environmental toxins
1: totally haphazardly um so i first i got into integrative medicine because i was starting to get healthy and i was kind of skeptical about kind of health and wellness. Some of the more, you know, at the time I thought acupuncture, what's that, you know, um, Ayurvedic medicine, what's that. Um, I got, uh, into integrative. So I was sort of had my eyes open in terms of an kind of like a holistic approach. So it wasn't that difficult to have something like environmental health come into my life, but the long and the short of it is, and I did, you know, talk about this with, um, a TEDx talk that I did not too long ago sort of how I got into this was my dog passed away. My dog got really sick. Um, this was like eight to nine years ago. And, um, I didn't know why. And I was so upset. I mean, many pet lovers out there, right. I was so heartbroken and I couldn't figure out why. So I started researching his exposures, potentially dog food, you know, his flea and tick collars, you know, the red toy that he had in his mouth, that's rubber. And the more I looked into his issues or potentially could have been risks for him to develop autoimmune hepatitis, the more I realized like we literally as a culture of the U.S. population are really um, have very limited regulation on almost everything we eat, drink, put on our skin.
0: It's so true. Yeah, people don't understand. But when you have a when you have a companion animal, I mean, you develop a bond with them that's like just as strong as. I mean, they may, may as well be human. And when you lose an animal, it almost feels like you're, I mean, I've, you know, I don't have kids, but I would imagine that it's just as traumatic, you know, to, to lose
1: uh,
0: yeah. a companion animal like that. I have lost an animal and it was like, yeah, I remember being traumatized by the experience.
1: Yeah, I was always an animal lover. So, you know, um, you would argue that I, I almost love my dog. It's more than my cat, my kids. But I mean, I mean, let's not go there. But I mean, the idea is that there is just something about pets, if you're a true animal lover, that's so into your soul that and they don't speak and they can't, you know, you're, you're their advocate. So there's just this, you know, desire to make sure that they're safe, um, you know, because they have no voice. So anyway, it, it was a really tough time. And I had two young kids at the time. So between learning about the lack of regulations and oversight and testing for toxicity and all our chemicals, Having this dog that I was literally tapping his abdomen with my husband, like literally getting fluid out of his abdomen in the evenings after we put the two kids away to, you know, to bed. I mean, it was insane. And, um, you know, it just really cut me to my core. But, you know, listen, I think there's some solace in his passing, because if it had not been for that dog's death, diagnosis and death, I can assure you, I would not be sitting here talking with you today. I'm pretty darn sure.
0: Yeah, I went on a similar journey when my mom got sick. It it caused me to uh, basically draw a line in the sand, and I, I decided to dive into the literature. And every you know everything that I've learned about nutrition has been motivated by the fact that I you know my mom got sick at a young age, and it uh, I had no explanation for it. We're not taught, you know. I mean, certainly when you go to medical school, you're taught about health, but as a as a citizen you know, when somebody as just a regular pedestrian, you know, when, when somebody in your life gets sick like that, you're not really equipped with the tools to, um, not only understand why, but to, to even begin to investigate. Uh, and so this is something that I think is really important, um, for people to feel empowered, to go out there and do their own, to, you know, become their own advocates and do their own research. So where did you then begin at that point? Because where, you know, Obviously, in retrospect, you know that we're exposed to any number of chemicals on a regular basis. But at at first, it must have felt pretty overwhelming.
1: I um, mean, it was overwhelming. And, um, you know, I, I began to have such a curiosity about what I was reading about that, um, you know, and I came across great resources. And that kind of led me to this path. So I came across environmental working groups um database you know their their website ewg.org and i started to learn a lot from them i also started to read a bunch of random articles um by at the time it was uh, fred vamsall who was largely responsible for removing bpa from baby bottles if you recall in 2012 it was made a lot of news well turns out he's my co-author now on two books so uh you know, again, I would not be here if it wasn't for this crazy journey. But what ended up happening uh, was um, I was on EWG so much and creating community lectures at the time, I figured I'm gonna talk locally on air quality and water quality um, and talk about just personal care products and and kind of the story that I could pick through. And I sent my slides down to, I actually called down to Environmental Working Group in Washington, a nonprofit, and I said, you know, listen, I don't know what I'm doing. I, you know, I'm a doctor, but I learned this stuff. I have this community lecture, I have these slides. Would you mind just looking them over? You guys are the toxicologists. I just want to make sure I'm getting it right. And wouldn't you know, um, I got this call back from Joanna Congleton, who at the time was the head science researcher. And she said, I can't believe you called and let's put something together and let's start putting something together that could be far reaching for physicians, other doctors. And I said, great. And it took about a year and a half of a learning curve to really understand about endocrine disrupting chemicals, how they work. I didn't even know what they were. Hmm. Um, and she would kind of email me. She was literally coaching me like Rocky. She was sending me these articles like once or, you know, a couple times a week and I would read them and then I would ask questions. And so I had this, um, you know, this coach. And so we ended up putting together this really great continuing medical education program, which, um, you know, has to be approved by hospital systems to lecture in their hospital. It's kind of rigorous. And I ended up lecturing to about 23 top hospitals on endocrine disruption chemicals, and where they are and what to do about it, how they work physiologically. And it was took about two and a half years to do that. Um, but I didn't really feel that I was getting what I, the response I was hoping for. And so that kind of took me in, in another direction towards high school education.
0: Wow. We've covered, um, endocrine disrupting chemicals a little bit in, on the podcast, uh, in the past, but, um, for listeners who, you know, maybe are, haven't listened to those episodes yet from a high level, what are endocrine disrupting chemicals and why need to, why do we need to be concerned about them?
1: So, um, the general, uh, you know, for, since the 1500s, the general hypothesis about exposure was that the more you get exposed to something in terms of the dose, the greater the reaction. Okay. So the greater the response, I look at it, like, you know, you go drinking one night, you drink too much, you're going to have a bad reaction as opposed to maybe one drink, you know? Um, so it's kind of like that analysis, but, um, in endocrine, you know, there's a group of chemicals that have been discovered over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, that have the ability to affect the human endocrine system and endocrine system for people who may not be aware is really hormones. So the hormones that affect thyroid hormone, you know, or fertility like estrogen and testosterone and body growth, you know, puberty, but also the endo- you know, the hormones that affect fetal growth. So, things that happen while the fetus is growing. Um, insulin is a hormone. So, things that affect body growth, obesity, whether you, you know, fat cells um, get larger and whether um, stem cells become fat cells, because those are the be- beginning cells in the human body. So, we have literally hundreds of hormones. And um, these chemicals, called the endocrine disrupting chemicals, have the capability of either mimicking those chemicals, some of those chemicals at low levels, um, or blocking receptors or confusing the signal because hormones are signals, you know, they're signalers, they signal between different organs what to do for physiology. Um, And so since this group of, you know, there's now over a 1000 endocrine disrupting chemicals that we now know of, but of course, they're discovered by third parties, they're not discovered by manufacturers or necessarily looked at, they're by institutions, educational academic institutions that have discovered after they've been released into the public, into products, that, oh yeah, this is what they do. And now we got to figure out how to get them either off the shelves or at least out of people's hands as best we can. Um, and that's kind of the work I'm doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, with most uh toxins, usually and you you, you know, you described how the dose typically makes the poison with something like alcohol. Arsenic, maybe even you know water. You know, you drink enough water fast enough, and it'll kill you. How? Why do endocrine disrupting chemicals um, not fall under that sort of purview of the dose making the poison?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because they don't work like your typical toxicological evaluation. Dose makes the poison, meaning linear, kind of going upwards. Um, they work at very low doses parts per million, parts per trillion, often at the same, they cause the same issues, same, you know, health risks, um, as high doses. But no one ever really bothered to look below those, those kind of levels um, and kind of look at the, the really microscopic levels. And that's the problem, you know, because they were never looked at, um, we never knew there was a problem. And now we're looking at literally as similar to hormones, the tiniest amounts on a you know whatever you ut- routine exposure every day, perhaps, adding up to sort of chronic um, exposure risk for chronic diseases.
0: Yeah, and how are they tested? I mean, are they tested? Um, uh, you know, are is each one of these over one thousand chemicals tested? You know, in in huge heterogeneous groups across the age spectrum. Or are they tested typically in in vitro studies and petri dishes? Like, how are we currently assessing their potential uh danger and what needs to, you know, what well, needs to change there?
1: Well, they start off with animal studies, so mouse studies. And I think that that's really where the first discoveries were made. In fact, early on there was a mouse study where the results showed um Unusual results of some kind of um, exposure. It was separate from an endocrine disruptor, and it turns out that it was the plastics in the water bottles of the mice that was actually affecting the results, and not so much the exposure they were looking at. So it was a secondhand, you know, way of finding that it was the plasticizers that were actually affecting the hormone uh, results. Um, you know, we, we always try to. I say we, I'm not the researcher, but in most studies, animal studies are certainly looked at first. And then there's this sort of this expansion into, um, you know, observational studies in humans, because we're not necessarily going to give someone bisphenol A or some prototype of it and say, oh, let's see what's going on after we give it to you. That's not ethical. That's kind of not where we're at. Um, But we do have enough data through NHANES data, which is um, every two years, um, the CDC conducts surveys on the American public, volunteers who give blood urine samples, they answer questionnaires. And um, we now know that there's over 75 new chemicals that we're now testing for in NHANES data through CDC every two years. It, it, you know, there's total of 200, I think of 12 now, 212 environmental chemicals being evaluated. Um, for exposure in the human population of the of the US, but um, they're adding more every, every two years for those NHANES data CDC surveys.
0: Yeah, it's my understanding that the animal studies themselves, uh, I mean, and in humans too, that the testing is pretty crude. I mean, in animal studies, then don't they just like weigh organs sometimes to see if there's an effect? Like they'll just like get the weight of organs and compare them you know, versus, versus the control animals and see if like these endocrine disrupting chemicals had any effect on the weight of the uterus or the, you know, like, I feel like I've well, seen I think
1: that. Those, those are some, yeah, I think there's some crude studies like that, but I would say in terms of sophisticated studies, I, you know, my understanding is they've gotten quite sophisticated and, and not only that, there's an international you know, consortium of endocrine disruptor disrupting chemical researchers around the world. I mean, this is not isolated to just the United States, even though you may argue that we have some of the worst regulations. Um, but even in the EU, um, European union, which is incredibly advanced in the way they go through chemical, um, evaluation and the regulation, they've taken over 1200 harmful chemicals off of the market. I did air quotes for harmful. Um, We've only taken five chemicals off the U.S. market since 1976 under the Toxic Substance Control Act. DDT is one of them. PCBs are a group of also, you know, you've heard of in the ocean, they're, they're forever chemicals. So we still have them out there. Same with DDT. It's just, they're not allowed to be produced or brought into this country. Um, but DDT is actually being used around the world for malaria uh, as a pesticide. So it's still going on. It's just not allowed in, in this country. It's just that there's only five chemicals. I mean, come on.
0: Wow. So what are some of the more common endocrine disruptors that people are exposed to today?
1: Um, okay, so I think the poster child that people can wrap their head around is BPA or bisphenol A. Um, BPA um, basically mimics low levels of estrogen. It um, has the ability to block testosterone and is sort of anti androgenic, which is the testosterones and, and other male um, you know uh, hormones. BPA um, basically was discovered in the 1930s. Um, it was found to have estrogenic. Um, effects, which is actually why it was originally going to be an estrogenic medication, hmm. but um, later became, it, other drugs like DES became that substitute. BPA has been around for years and known to say fatten chickens in livestock. So it makes chickens bigger, wow. which doesn't surprise me or anyone else. I would imagine that BPA makes people fatter because it's an endocrine disruptor that actually increases fat cells and actually increases, um, uh, again, the, the stem cells turning into fat cells. BPA, um, is so pervasive. It's probably the most, um, uh, widely distributed, widely manufactured, um, of, of, of all the industrial chemicals. It's, it, it's in everything that's, that's bendable, stretchable. It's in, um, not in baby bottles and sippy cups anymore, but it's lines, the, cans uh, of every aluminum can. It's the coating inside of these cans. Um, And it's in uh, clothing wear. It's on fake belts and it's on currency. So on the surface of currency, it sets ink. So any receipt, the majority, I should say, because there are some receipts that don't use BPA, but the majority, uh, I'm sorry, the minority that don't use them, but the majority really do use BPA to set the ink. And that's Airplane tickets and receipts and anything that comes through that machine, and you have to pay parking tickets. Um, so we really do have a lot of BPA out there, and it's it's continuing its use. It's like a, a billion. Um, there's, I think it's like something like six billion pounds of BPA per year produced. So it's it's pretty pervasive.
0: Wow, and BPA it it is a known xenoestrogen, as you mentioned. It acts Mm -hmm. like estrogen in the body, but it's also been shown to alter insulin responses. Um, And at what dose? I mean, are you know are we seeing effects from BPA?
1: Well, um, an exact dose is variable for each human, right? So um, you know we know that it doesn't take much—parts per billion and parts per trillion Mm -hmm. exposures on a daily basis. Now, it's the kind of chemical that um, breaks down; it has a half-life. Of six hours ish. So, if you were to stop it, you know, getting exposure today, which has been shown in, in people who drink same canned sodas or canned soups, there's great experiments on humans on this where um, you can um, substitute out, say, a canned soup um, for a homemade soup. And you can see a thousand percent reduction. This was a study out of um, Harvard School of Public Health. Wow. Um, where they had 75 participants kind of switching out that lunch meal only from canned, um, to homemade. And they had over a it was 1200% drop in BPA in the urine. So we know that when you stop certain behaviors that expose you to BPA, you can see a return on that behavior. And those, those levels drop pretty precipitously because it's a short acting chemical. The downside is BPA comes from everywhere in so many products and so many exposures that we have what's called pseudo persistence, which kind of means, unfortunately, that you can get rid of it, but it's always coming in. So you're always going to have some levels. Um, But, you know, I disagree with that in terms of the kind of messaging I give, which is, you know, let's get rid of it as many places as we can get rid of it and really knock those numbers down and lower potential risk of disease.
0: Hey guys, just wanna give a shout out to one of the sponsors of this episode of the show and that is Perfect Keto. Perfect Keto make a line of super high quality products designed to help you along in your ketogenic journey, whether you are on a ketogenic diet or whether you are keto interested or whether you are keto curious, how about that? Uh, Or whether you are just trying to reduce sugar and carbohydrates in your diet, Perfect Keto is a great uh, resource to get um, information. They have a number of great resources on their website. They also make products like their protein bars and their delicious ketogenic cookies, which are amazing and shelf-stable and um, grain-free, sugar-free and rigorously tested so as not to increase your blood sugar uh, significantly when you consume them. This is uh, very useful for... um, A lot of people who are on ketogenic diets, uh, on that low-carbohydrate life, um, also for people with um, diabetes that are looking to keep their blood sugar stable, they make a number of really uh, cool products, and so I'm happy to have them sponsor the show. If you'd like to uh, check them out, go to perfectketo.com, that's perfectketo.com slash genius, and use promo code genius, and you will get 20% off of everything plus free shipping plus a free nut butter on orders of $80 or more. Their nut butters are super tasty, um, made using, I believe, primarily macadamia nuts, which are just so tasty. If you haven't had macadamia nut butter yet, you are truly missing out. So thank you, Perfect Keto. Perfectketo.com slash genius, promo code genius. uh, To get those savings, you will not regret it. Now back to the show with Dr. Cohen. Of course. And it's not, I mean, BPA is not the only endocrine disruptor that we're exposed to, right? You add that into the bucket with the phthalates and the, um, the brominated flame retardants and, you know, all, all of the other chemicals that you talk about. So can you just walk us through just a, just a handful of others um, that people should be aware of and where they lurk in the modern environment?
1: Yeah, so um, let's talk food chemicals. So, foods, um, our foods are highly processed in general in the country, um, around the world, really. Um, sat- the standard American diet, which is what we all seem to be part of, um, is really highly processed or ultra processed foods, as you talk about, of course, a lot. Um, and there's a lot of food chemicals that are, um, you know, endocrine disruptors, you know, emulsifiers, pesticides. Um, even food packaging has chemicals that are endocrine disruptors, which kind of defeats the purpose. If you have this great organic salad with lots of great ingredients, and then you're sort of transporting it around in plastic and, you know, you're heating up your food in plastic and, you know, so I think when people start to think that that's another uh, exposure route, you know, we may, you know, try to tame that. But the idea is that we get exposed through food we have drinking water, which is one of my biggest beefs actually, if, if it rises to the top. Um, we get contaminated with a lot of chemicals in our um, municipal tap or, or you know, or treatment plant water, but we also get exposed to many harmful chemicals through well water. Um, and that affects not just the chemicals that get into our body, but the gut microbiome um, that that water and food comes in contact with. So then there's personal care products you know, that are unregulated, completely unregulated in the U.S. Hmm. in terms of the ingredients. And in fact, if they do anything to you, harmful, the manufacturer is actually responsible to get it off the shelves. Our government doesn't even pull it, which wow. is pretty remarkable. That's shocking. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah. In terms of like the pharmacokinetics of, of these chemicals, you know, I understand how when we consume food that was stored in a can that was produced using BPA, you know, we we ingest these chemicals or when we slather parabens on our skin, um, you know, the skin is, uh, you know, we absorb chemicals through our skin. But when it comes to items like, you know, plastic containers where we store dry food, for example, or our mattresses or our furniture um, or even plastic, you know, electronics that we have around the house. I mean, are these all things that we need to be cognizant of? Or is it mainly the kinds of, you know, the, the, the things that we're ingesting or slathering on our skin?
1: So I think the point of your question, which I get a lot is what's the crazy factor here? What's the coefficient (laughs) for crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Because honestly, we cannot live our lives completely up in arms and freaked out. Don't we have enough fear on our plate right now? I mean, for real, right? So what I'm I try to just, you know, knowing what I now know after eight or nine years of learning this stuff, I've had to pick my battles. And I'm hoping that the the battles that I pick may reflect on other people's choices based on risk. Okay, so what I think of, first of all, first and foremost, is, you know, we breathe in a lot of chemicals that we just don't need. Okay, we bring a lot of crap into our houses, air fresheners, incense, candles that are synthetic, carpet powders. Um, laundry detergents that, you know, cleaning products, all of these products that we think are keeping up with the Joneses are necessary is all marketing. And the best way really to start in terms of the crazy factor is just start, stop buying it and stop bringing it into your house. And that's one way where a lot of these chemicals definitely decrease in terms of your exposure and your kids exposure and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, like marketing on TV, especially like during the primetime hours would make you think that the average person is just a slob, you know, doesn't smell good. Their clothing is disgusting. Everything needs to be sanitized. When in, I mean, the reality is you'd probably be doing a, your health a big favor um, by, you know, getting rid of these like synthetic fragrances. And, you know, you might even allow some of your, your own natural pheromones to come out. It could potentially get you a date.
1: That is true. I think my husband counted on that years ago. Um, But to be honest with you, you're absolutely right. In fact, we're really moving away from our anthropologic perspective here. Okay, I was an anthro minor. I love it. I think that we are so far removed from where we should be as human beings. You know, we we have gotten rid of our microbiomes uh, in our gut through our food and chemicals through drinking water. But we also have, you know, we're doing it with our skin, you know, skin lotions and antimicrobials like triclosan, um, you know, things, products we use in our hair to get rid of natural oils um, and, and the bacteria that live on our skin that protect us. Um, even believe it or not, intravaginally, we're using feminine care products that are filled with chlorine and rayon and other plastics and, um, you know, fragrances and antimicrobials. And, and that is another route into the human body and young women, which is just extraordinary. Um, because it's actually much quicker than even our skin because of the, the tissue that's made up of that area. So, you know, I think that we have to go back to our anthropologic roots and think about clean, pristine drinking water. How do we get it? Um, air quality. How can we control what's in our homes if we can't control what's in our offices or outside of our doors? Um, how do we think about what we put on our skin and do we need anything at all? I mean, why are we washing so much? Um You know, and so that's what I I think we need to getting sleep. I mean, anthropologically sleep, we actually get rid of chemicals while we sleep. There's wonderful studies on this um, from as recent as 2013 when they showed um, cerebral spinal fluid actually reduces chemical exposure while you sleep. It drains. It's like a lymphatic system. Um, It's actually called the glymphatic system. So um, going back to our traditional kind of um, evolutionary roots, I think is always the best way to go.
0: Yeah, so let's start with water. How do we clean up our water?
1: So let me give some background just to give an idea of why we need to clean up our water, because I don't think people know the problem. Um, and I think that helps to buy into the solution. Hmm. Um, so the first thing is we have over 160,000 water treatment plants in this country. So these are the treatment plants where you probably get a water bill. You know, if you get a water bill, then you know it's municipal tap. If you don't get a water bill, um, it's usually a well, and you would probably know that if you're a homeowner. Um, So we have enormous number of treatment plants. Now, the problem is really is from the Safe Drinking Water Act that manages these treatment plants, these 160,000 treatment plants. But it's an old law. It's from 1974. Wow. And it's been amended once or twice but essentially we're still following this law that was passed by congress um and it only covers in terms of regulation and management 91 chemicals i kid you not
0: 91 underneath wow
1: okay and in that is benzene and some levels of arsenic and 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 actually, it's not hard to look this up, you know, chemicals covered by the Safe Drinking Water Act of 1974. And, you know, it gives a level that the EPA, the U.S. EPA deems safe, which is arguable in and of itself for some of these chemicals. But it's only 91 chemicals that are able to be removed or or remediated or fixed in some way if they, you know, ding the number too high at that treatment plant. The problem is we have over 90 thousand, 90,000 chemicals that are able to get into our water systems. And that comes from air and air pollution falling on lakes, streams and bodies of water. And 80% of those treatment plants are, um, you know, are treated by water that comes from surface water. 20% comes from aquifers underneath the ground, which could be you know, a problem with fertilizers and runoff from, you know, animal feedlots and industrial waste, um, flooding, um, spills, oil spills. So, you know, we're all the water and even sewage, by the way, I, I didn't want to ruin your day entirely, but <laughs> sewage can be drinking water. Wow. So, you know, draino. I mean, we just unclogged a, a sink in my house and I thought, hmm, where's that draino going? You know, um, I'm not sure if you have to ding that in order to not get sued. But anyway, the point is that all of the exposures through toilet sinks, bodies of water underground, they potentially become our drinking water because the infrastructure has not been changed in 40 years, 50 years, and the laws haven't changed. And so it's really up to us as consumers to think about how we should best create a water system for ourselves um, you know, because that water, even it travels through PVC piping or mm-hmm. lead piping to our home. So once it leaves the treatment plant, you know, that's it also. Um, we live on farmland in New Jersey. So I can't even tell you how many legacy pesticides are under our own house. So, um, it's really up to us. And the, the, the solution, which the good news is, is that this is actually easy to do. We had to figure it out. I had to figure it out with my husband. So, you really just need to get the most aggressive filtration system you possibly can, or even not so aggressive. There's all ranges of filtration systems, but to be honest with you, they're not cost prohibited anymore, prohibitive anymore, and everyone can get them. And that's what, um, I'm trying to get people to see.
0: Yeah. What do you think about, um, I mean, I guess like the least expensive types of filtration systems that people have in their homes are like the charcoal, uh, pitcher filters, for
1: example. Yeah. Those are called carbon block, carbon block filters. And they actually have a lot of things stick to it really as it washes through. Um, and those are very good. I mean, they're in, you know, faucet contraptions, they're in zero water, Brita filters, those kind of things. But they're also in the, um, the, you know, on the door of the refrigerator. Hmm. Um, those are carbon filters. And then there's, you know, tons of others. There's distillers and there's UV light and there's um, you know, ion exchange, and there are all these fancy terms, but if you go to the extreme of what you you can use to clean water, there's also what's called reverse osmosis. And so the carbon pictures are great. I mean they're great for people who don't own a home, don't own an apartment, are kind of on the go, a little nomadic, you know but they want some coverage. And I think that's great. Then I think that the pitcher filters really serve a purpose and you can even fill up those pictures from your refrigerator door, right? So that's like double filtration if you can do that. Um, but if you want to invest in something that's somewhere between two and $300, you can get a really great reputable certified, um, reverse osmosis water filter and either get it installed under your sink. And now they're making some that are above the sink. um, So carbon filters aren't cheap. I mean, I think the pitchers are around 40 bucks and the cartridges to replace them can be pretty expensive, you know, in a way, depending on where you're living and what your situation is, it's almost worth investing in an RO filter and just taking it with you wherever you go. So, you know, having a plumber deal with it, but, um, not cost prohibitive.
0: Yeah. I use a reverse osmosis filter that just sits on my counter. Um, after you run your water through, I'm assuming you use a reverse osmosis filter as well. Correct. Yeah. Do you, yes. re, cause a reverse osmosis, they, they remove everything from the water, right? So, I mean, typically when you drink water, you get, you know, you, there's bad in the water, but there's also good in the water. There's like minerals, magnesium, uh, copper, you know, water is a significant, significant source of copper, which is an essential mineral for, for people. So what do you do? Um, when, after the water has been run through, do you add, do you remineralize it?
1: So this is a really great great question because people always say, Oh, your water's dead. I'm like, what do you mean my water's dead? Okay, you know, like what you're describing without something healthy in it. So, you know, we get minerals from food. We get minerals from supplements. If you take a great multivitamin, we get minerals from a lot of other sources, sea salts. If you just cook with sea salts without being um um, you know, if it's not um, I can't think of the word, but anyway, it's just sea salt and not manipulated, right? Like table salt, which is just sodium, you get potassium, chloride, sodium, and magnesium balanced. Um, So the answer to your question is the, the harm in drinking water from well or municipal tap or treated water to me far outweighs whatever losses you may have from an electrolyte standpoint. And you're correcting the problem wherever it comes from, whether it comes from below your house or it comes from 50 miles away, you're going to fix the problem at the source, which is the point of use, which is your tap. And whatever you want to do, I say, you know, you can have a great meal with that water and get your electrolytes, or you could do what I do, which is create sort of a a safe Gatorade, which is a turn or two of sea salt and a little juice. You've made Gatorade without chemicals. You can always get those back.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. I appreciate that. I I use, uh, I'll re-add trace minerals, but I completely agree that that's a that's an option you know it's optional I think the uh the most important thing is to get the um the potentially harmful chemicals out of your water um so let's uh pivot then to you know you talk about air quality the air quality in our homes um and you briefly you know mentioned kind of being more cognizant of the fragranced products that we bring in um but what else can we do to clean up the air in our homes, which according to some studies can be you know, by at least an order of magnitude, more polluted than outdoor air, which I think is very counterintuitive and surprising.
1: Yeah, I think I just saw, didn't you just post on air quality and COVID as well? Was that something you had said? I thought maybe I'd seen something you had mentioned about it. But basically, the idea is that air pollution contributes to not just stuff we're thinking about short term, like asthma and, and you know we have a big problem with asthma, especially in major cities, especially with children as well. Um, but we now know that particulate matter, which is PM 2.5, mm-hmm. meaning the size of the particles are so small you couldn't see them, but they actually have a certain um, size to them, diameter, um, that actually it raises, you know in, in polluted areas around the world. it raises risk for um, severe reaction to COVID-19, um, it almost 20 fold. And this just came out of Harvard School of Public Health. And so, you know, we can't always fix our outdoor air. We can't always fix it. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of slaves to our environment in many ways, but we can fix what goes on in our home and in our cars, believe it or not, when you commute. Um, and I, and in sometimes in our work, if you make a stink about it. So I think that it's really important to know what you can and can't work on. Um certainly removing the products, getting better vetted cleaning products, if you're going to use them, of course, uh, but adding plants. I mean, we have, there's great studies on houseplants, dracaena, mother-in-law's tongue, um, uh, let's see, money plant. These are all plants that have been studied to remove the VOCs or the volatile organic um, compounds that are in the air from many of these um, chemicals. So. Um You know we can add plants, remove chemicals, we can open windows let's just say our outside air might be nicer than indoors, perhaps we can open windows half an hour to an hour a day and you know recirculate that air. um Another thing we can do is certainly dust because many, many of the chemicals in households, especially cleaning products and you know coming off of couches like flame retardants and computers and all that, they end up on the floor. And that's where our pets are. That's where our children, young children are. And so all you really do have to do is get a HEPA filter vacuum or water wipes and really just be on top of the dust load. And that does a great um, deal of, of good.
0: Yeah, I mean, pets, I believe it was like U.S. cats have been found to have multiple orders of magnitude, higher levels of some of these endocrine disrupting compounds in them than than people i mean they're smaller so whatever's in them is going to be more concentrated but they also i mean my cat loves to roll around on my carpet and i just wonder what she's picking up you know in doing that and getting I mean, it on her fur and then licking her fur Yeah, exactly.
1: They're the canary in the coal mines. And in fact, they were they were on the cover hyper cat hyperthyroidism was on one of the covers of a section of The New York Times not that long ago. And what happened was all these vets were talking to each other about this wasting cat syndrome. And it turned out that they have some of the highest levels of polybrominated flame retardant chemicals that we have in a lot of our in our products, but primarily couches that we bought prior to say 2013, because many of the couch manufacturers are changing and not having those in their couches. But like most of us, couches ain't cheap, you know, and you're not going to be changing at your couch every year, just because someone says that there's chemicals in it, you're going to wait until it gets a hole in it, you know, um, and that kind of thing. But cats, we're sort of this big canary in the coal mine. And um, it became a thing where now it's, it's shown that many cats that have this kind of random wasting of muscle and get smaller and thinner and don't want to eat, they may actually have hyperthyroidism due to the endocrine disruption ability of flame retardant chemicals and other chemicals in the home.
0: It's scary. So what do we do about our furniture then? I mean, as you mentioned, like it's not super practical to go out and recommend that everybody get rid of their couches because as you mentioned it's expensive so in terms of like a taking a triage approach to uh you know what we're exposed to in our furniture how do people reconcile all the wonderful information that you're giving them and the fact that like you know swapping out furniture is expensive
1: yeah i went through this because i was too cheap myself to get rid of some couches and i just was panicking internally so I started exploring different. Um, you know, there's companies that actually t- test the foam to see if you have it, and you have to for that. And I thought, okay, well, that's an expense. And then I thought about covers, which can be very helpful. You can you can have a cover. Um, of course, you don't want a vinyl cover because that sort of defeats the purpose. So you have to think of natural fibers like um, wool fibers that are really dense. Um, and but that's an expense too. And then as I started to realize the companies, um, and I don't want to promote them here, but I will say there's a company called green science policy, dot um, org, which was started by Arlene Blum, which is, she's famous for taking flame retardant chemicals out of pajamas, baby, a kid's pajamas in the seventies, a certain type. She's incredible. That's their nonprofit. And in that site, they actually give, um, uh, they, they update all of the different furniture companies that have flame retardant chemicals and which do not. And again, this is all in this upcoming book that I have coming up. So trying to keep it simple. But, um, you know, essentially, we ended up finding out the couches that without flame retardant chemicals are labeled as TB uh, 117-13 or 2013. And that's the distinct difference on the label. So just by reading the couch label, you can see whether or not it was part of that whole push for flame retardant chemicals that started in the 1970s. And just having that 2013 at the end of that label, uh, that wording will actually show you that it has no added flame retardants. Um, so I, you know, so there's ways to really decipher that out. There's, there's resources that are excellent in terms of which companies are doing the right thing. Um, and then there's covers that you can use temporarily. And then there's vacuuming and dusting that gets off the residue from those, those chemicals. So I think that's the best way to handle it in the meantime. Um, but they're not expensive couches anymore, you know. They really are, are quite reasonable in many of these manufacturers that are yeah. that are clean.
0: When you talk about dusting, you mean uh, – because actually I um, began dusting and I was using a dry duster. And then I realized – I thought to myself, I'm just redistributing all the crap that I'm, you know, that I'm like swiping around. So we want to make sure to wet dust, basically. Use a cloth or a paper towel, dampen it, and then throw that out after you after you dust, right?
1: Right. Because there's companies that I don't want to name here, but they come with tons of chemicals on them. And then you're basically wiping chemicals with chemicals that are just going to stay there. So just remember, and there's ones that are just made with water and vitamin C. They're baby wipes, actually. Um, And they have just water and vitamin C, which is a uh, preservative, a very safe preservative, actually. People don't know much. uh, They add it to food as a preservative vitamin C. So that's all that's in there or you could just get water, you know, water right out of your, your tap in a rag. So it's not complicated. It's just something you have to keep up with.
0: Yeah. When it comes to cleaning products, what do you recommend for people? I mean, you can, uh, you know, vinegar I think is a great, is a great healthy option to use. What else?
1: Yeah. Vinegar is interesting because, um, you know, edible vinegar, I think it's 4% concentration, but As a cleaning product, it'll say 5%. It just changes the label with 1% difference. Either vinegar, white vinegar is great for cleaning. It stinks. So you may want to actually dilute it. um, One part vinegar to maybe three or four parts water and put it in a spray bottle with a little bit of, um, detergent, uh, I should say dish soap, you know, a a good quality dish soap. And then you've covered that stink a little bit. Um, but I do do it yourself, uh, you know, cleaning products in, in this upcoming book, but, you know, listen, I'll be honest, it's, it's time consuming, even if it doesn't take much time. And so I actually also tell patient uh, people, patients to go to EWG has a great resource for vetting out cleaning products as well as personal care products. So they're just a really good, reputable resource to um, figure it out. Um, but you would imagine nothing with fragrance, you know, something that's kind of eco-friendly often is a lot of, is human friendly in many ways, not always. It's some of that screenwashing, but, um but their ewg.org is able to handle that kind of um, information in a really smart way.
0: What do you do to disinfect surfaces? Because vinegar, as far as I know, is not a not a a, a viable disinfectant.
1: Yeah, isopropyl alcohol is really, you know, when we're talking, you know, the safest, you know, bleach does kills everything. But bleach can be really harmful, especially if it's um, greater than six months old. It actually can cause problems when it's mixed with the air. It's called you know changes to perchlorate, which actually can affect the thyroid gland. So you if you're going to use bleach and you can dilute it out, and according to the CDC, um, with COVID uh, nineteen, you really do need a disinfectant um, as opposed to a cleaning um, chemical because disinfectant really kills what's there, and and cleaning can often break it down, but not necessarily clean it, and often can move it, but it's not necessarily disinfectant. So bleach can be diluted, and there's a um, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's um, we just put it in the book and I can't remember it. Can you believe it? Um, but it's a certain percentage. <laughs> I'm old. Um, it's a certain percentage um, of bleach you can add to water. I, you know, it's difficult for people with lung disease or lung, you know, asthma, COPD. I think it's very hard to do that and it can be safe, uh, unsafe to skin and eyes. I think isopropyl alcohol, which is rubbing alcohol, 60 to 70 percent is a really good way to go.
0: And you can get that from like a, just a pharmacy, a drugstore
1: there's, there's isopropyl wipes, you can get a bottle of it and just pour it on, you know, um, how easy it is to get is another question, but certainly I would, I would opt for, for that as a better way to go.
0: Yeah. And when it comes to our food, uh, you know, obviously I think we've talked a number of times on the podcast and I've, I've written about, you know, just how important it is to avoid plastic as best you can. Um, what do you do in those instances where you just can't avoid plastic? I mean, I, you know, I'll be the first to admit, I'm not, Perfect. When I'm at an airport and I'm thirsty and I don't have a freaking glass bottle with me, uh, I'm going to go buy a plastic bottle. So in terms of that, um, you know, in terms of our food and our exposures through that axis, I mean, what can we do to help ourselves? And then we don't have that much time left, but I do want to make some time for like purging what we've already accumulated. So like, you know, I know the word detox can be a bit of a dirty word. Uh, but I do want to talk about the ways that people can support their body's own natural, uh, detox capacities.
1: Yeah. I think what you're describing is being human, okay. Human in modern day life, really. You know, you we're. I think the number should be 80, 20, 80%, you get it right as best you can. You know, 20 percent, you're human and you do the best you can outside of what you can control. Right. Like the serenity prayer. Um, I think that, you know, you do the best to carry your water safely and fill it up before you go. But if you're going away on a trip and you don't have access to filtered water, although airports are actually putting some of these in and and we're having a little bit of a movement on that in terms of um, filtered water. Um, but I think that you have to do the best you can. Look, there's organic products that are fabulous that are all in plastic. Um, you know, and so how do you, you know, work on that? Well, you can't really separate it out. You have to just do the best you can. Um, but, you know, using materials like I, I do take out and I'll pick up in this big stainless steel kind of camping three quart container. And yeah, they think I'm crazy, but they said yes already six times before. So they just fill up my hot soup and my tikka masala and my Chinese food in that thing. And I've got three orders in there. So, you know, look, is it the number one thing people should be thinking about at my stage? Yes. At someone else's stage, probably not if this is new to them, this concept. But I think you just do the best you can and you work on one area, one idea, you know, a month. You know, if it takes a month to get your water quality and your filtering situation up to snuff and get the right water bottles that are glass or stainless steel and not plastic, you've created a water system and that is brilliant. That'll serve you the rest of your life. Hmm. Um, If you change out all your personal care products, it probably would take an hour to do, really. Um, And, you know, in terms of air fresheners and all that stuff, you can just get rid of that stuff in a minute or change out Tupperware. So, you know, everyone's on their own journey, but I don't think we should be mad at ourselves. Um, you know, I color my hair. Look, I'll be the first to admit it. But that's a choice I've made and I've decided that that's one of the things right now, hmm. maybe not in a week or or actually I shouldn't say that I'm in quarantine. So, I'm starting to see what I'm I was originally. But um, you know, the idea is us. that you, oh, all of us. We're we are lifting the hood on a lot of good stuff. <laughs> um, but
0: yeah, I think it, you got to be kind to yourself. Yeah, I had a I was I ordered sushi the other day and um you know my the the sushi that I had comes in like this plastic container, right? And the meal that I it was like a sushi, it was like a combo. And uh it also came with like a miso soup. And I was looking at both containers, you know, you have like the dry sushi in this plastic container. I was like, that's probably there's probably nothing wrong with that, you know. It's like transiently it's this dry food that's in this like container. But then I looked at the miso soup and I was like, hmm. It's like this plastic container where they're pouring scalding hot soup into this container. And it actually made me feel kind of gross drinking. I I drank like some of the miso soup, you know, because it came with it. But then I was like, I'm probably going to not get that next time because that is probably I'm just drinking plastic, I feel like.
1: Yeah, it's depressing, actually, because, you know, I, I love hot soup from this one restaurant and I, could, I couldn't enjoy it. I just could not enjoy it because I could feel it in my body, and I just knew too much. And so I literally, for an hour, researched something, bought it online, and it's brilliant. I just have to get to use it a little more often. But it's just a, you know, can't, you know. but you have to be prepared. Like, when are you going to be prepared to get that soup or that sushi? It could be off the cuff, right? Yeah. So I'm going to keep it in my car. You know, I'll keep it in my car in case I decide. I'll just call and get it. You, you just got to be clever. But you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's a shame that some of the most healthy foods that we want are not at our discretion to fix in terms of packaging. Like, we don't have a say in it. And, you know, you get what you get unless you're a farmer and you can grow it in your own backyard.
0: Yeah, it's so true. Um, in terms of, yeah, like, you know, uh, detox. I actually don't mind using the word detox because I know my intent when I use the word detox. Our bodies have an amazing capacity to detoxify. But yes, I know that the wellness industry has co-opted the term and they use it to sell laxative teas and all kinds of crazy supplements and things like that. But um, so I like to give that sort of like disclaimer. But yeah, in terms of detoxification, um, what do you recommend for people? I was listening to you on a podcast before we got on and you were talking about the value of sweat, sweating. Um, So what do you think about that? I actually had a I had a, a pediatrician on um, I'm not sure in what order it's going to air, but he uh, he was saying that like he, tra- he was trying to um, take apart the myth that saunas actually help us, uh, you know, get rid of these compounds. And I uh, was taken aback by that statement because I've seen literature where sitting in a sauna sweating, sweating is a major detox modality. So what are your thoughts on all that?
1: So I agree with you on all of the above. So first of all, sweat, sweat equity. I try to teach my kids that when they don't want to do anything around the house. But anyway, sweating in and of itself is a fabulous detox tool. We've evolved with it. Um, We were meant to sweat to clear chemicals. Now, how many chemicals and how much is definitely up for dispute. Um, But we do have skin as a mechanism, which really means that our livers are working to get it Broken down, we have different types of detox properties within the liver and in the kidney, and the end result is what we get onto our skin. If we have a functional, you know, sweat gland system, um, we were evolved. We evolved to move. We evolved to exercise because of you know all of the benefits for mental health. We were, it, but we're really circulating that blood through the liver at a high volume, um, and it does increase what they call conjugation of these chemicals and breakdown. So I'm a big fan of exercise for every reason you can think of. Um, we're not meant to be sedentary. But if, look, I have patients that have joint issues, you know, they can't run. Um, but then you have sauna. I mean, sauna has its role in healthy and maybe disabled or or disadvantaged or different patients that can't really manage a run. And I think that that's valuable because all it's doing is raising your body temperature where you're not able to do it physically, I'm not so keen on infrared. Um, I, I've read the literature on a lot of it, far and near. I have a section in you know different areas of this book or the textbook. Um, there's some risk potentially of some increased rates of skin cancers through the way that those. Um, and again, it's far versus near infrared. So again, I don't want to speak too much on that. I just go back to hey, sauna is just heat. It's just heat. And if it's in a space where the wood is not treated with, um, arsenic or any of the other chemicals that treat wood and it's well vetted, I think saunas are phenomenal. Um, but you also talk a lot about, um, the foods you eat and certain foods are detoxed, you know, cruciferous vegetables are like, you know, killer. I mean, they're great and they have sulforaphane and diendomethazone, um, uh, you know, or dim, they have a lot of great detoxing properties that um really do work for the body so between what you eat and what you don't eat what you drink in terms of clean drinking water and what you get rid of in terms of exposure exercise sleep as i mentioned and getting the, gly- the lymphatic system working quality and quantity of sleep um, and sauna when and where you can get it safely i think that's a fabulous prescription for detox
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Is there, so have they shown with the glymphatic system? Because I, you know, I've talked about so many times the, its ability to cleanse the brain of the amyloid and the tau um, proteins, but I mean, have they looked at its ability to rid the brain of, or, you know, reduce the burden on the brain of other compounds?
1: So it's relatively new science that I have seen. Um, A lot of it's out of China. There's a one great study in 2013 and they, um, they looked at a uh, some some you know I am trying to remember the specifics but essentially they were just noticing that you know the size and and shape and and form of chemicals could actually leave through that system and it was more of a mechanical look see um, to see if they could fit through the cerebral spinal in the you know through the brain tissue and and come out um, in in the periphery. Um, I, you know, I'd have to look into it to see if there's any testing. I mean, it's hard to, I would imagine it would probably be hard to, me- to measure unless you're getting spinal taps on a lot of people who are probably not psyched about it. Yeah. Um, unless they're doing animal studies. I mean, I'm sure it's animal studies first and, and that's where they're really seeing the most, um, science coming out of animal studies. Um, but I think it's a, still an emerging area. Um, but the fact that it was even identified in, in pretty decent journal articles, I thought you know, it was really hopeful and really exciting.
0: Yeah. What was the Hermosa study that I've heard you reference in the past?
1: Yeah, Hermosa is great. So Hermosa was a study that was done out of California and it was really in regards to personal care products mm. and um, what they decided. To, they wanted to see if if um, changing out your personal care products to safer options would make a difference in terms of your chemical burden. So they they picked 100 volunteers, young Latina girls, actually, across the country, so different parts of the country, and they switched out um, three of their products to um, other products that were considered safer. And again, I had to just look up what safer meant, and there wasn't great criteria on what they meant by safer, but they measured um, a bunch of chemicals in the urine, including BPA. Um, and they found that they had a huge reduction in exposure from, I'm sorry, it wasn't three products, but it was several products, but it was over three days. And then three days they saw the reduction, um, of all hundred, uh, young girls. So, you know, again, it goes back to, does, do these behavioral changes, um, make a difference? We know they make a difference, perhaps even short-term with chemical load. Does it make a difference whether you get cancer or not? That's hard to say because genetics, lifestyle and exposures all play that dance. Um, but what I, what I would say to people is if you can do this without much cost, just being smart and clever and mostly avoidance and vet out what you are already going to use. I think that makes sense to lower your risk of future, um, illness.
0: Yeah. And don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, some is better than none. Yeah. And you're going to be human at the end of the day. You know you're going to be exposed uh, to environments that you can't necessarily control. You're going to find yourself at an airport one day where you're thirsty and you don't have a glass or stainless steel bottle on you, and you're going to need to buy that. You know the water that comes in plastic. But I think as long as you're doing the best that you can and you go easy on yourself in the process, um, and and you're kind to yourself, I think that's a you're going to you know do a lot for your health. You're going to be paying you know, and it's going to and it's going to pay you big dividends.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think low effort, low cost is the name of the game. If it's too much of those, then most people would probably not maintain it or, or not attempt it. So it's just a matter of showing people the way to do it um, easily. Um, and that's my whole goal with what I'm doing.
0: Love that. Well, thank you for your wisdom. I've got just one last question for you before we get to that. Um, I know you have a book out and you've got another book forthcoming. Where can people get more, um, you know, information from you? Where can they connect with you on social media, et cetera?
1: Um, appreciate that. So I actually started something called the smart human, which is my platform, on on social media. So it's thesmarthuman.com, but it's on Facebook, the smart human at the smart human on Twitter and Instagram. I'm actually going to be hopefully starting maybe a podcast soon on the smart human. Um, It's really just my way of giving good information, smart information on a regular basis in little, you know, posts. Um, So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, usually on Facebook. And, um, you know, that's my way for people, the everyday person to to really take in a lot of this information on a variety of topics. The new book um, is the consumer version of our textbook that we did in 2017. um, And it's called Non-Toxic. Guide to Living Healthy in a Chemical World. And it's available at, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's pre-order. You can pre-order it now. It'll be out in August. And um, I'm incredibly proud of it. And my co-author is a giant in the world of environmental health research um, and chemical, excuse me, chemical research. So it was just an honor. And um, I think we really put together something that people will appreciate. I'm hoping.
0: I love that. Have you ever butt heads with any of these like industry apologists on social media that are like, everything's a chemical, you know, or uh, the dose makes the poison for everything? Or, you know, some of these people that um, basically come out with pitchforks whenever you suggest that, uh, you know, I don't know that. That people should take a, you know, take a a closer look at the things that they're ingesting or exposing themselves to, um, you know. Uh, It's just, I've seen it, uh, you know, a few times on social media, and I'm just wondering, um, because you've built such a a, a large platform, um, if you've ever sort of butt heads with any of these types.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm starting to get more and more of it, I think, as I get out there. I've sort of been hiding a little bit. Um, I'm learning from my colleagues like you and others about how to get a thick skin. (laughs) Um, I've been getting actually some nice tips. Um, but essentially, listen, the world is full of really, you know, all over the place, interesting people. And, you know, I have to stay in my lane. I know my training. I know my education. I know my morality and what I'm willing to talk about and not. Um, I think the more we know ourselves, the more we 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 can put the right messaging out there. You know, I get a lot of people who try to engage me on the vaccine issues. Oh, you know, if all these chemicals are so bad, why don't you talk about vaccines? it in, in, I'm not even going to go one way or another. I'm not going to distract from my messages that I feel are much easier to manage lower hanging fruit. Um, and perhaps, you know, hit a larger population. I can comment. I'm not afraid, but I just, I think it's distracting to the big picture. Um, and I'm hoping to get this into high schools nationally. Um, to really get an early start on how exposures start young and how even young people are really proactive and interested in learning about soccer turf or water or what personal care products are on their bodies. I mean, that's really such a special demographic and that's really a big goal of mine as we move forward.
0: Yeah. It's so important what you're doing, especially because like young people are among the most vulnerable, you know, because they're still developing
1: and and you know what they they are interested they're savvy they're tech savvy they're body aware um you know they're going to start habits that they're going to follow through perhaps for the rest of their lives so if we can get in there now and and sort of work on some of those behaviors with them you know this is going to not only have lasting effects for their own health but perhaps for even generations to follow you know so getting them young and and eager is is fabulous and in my work i did a lot of, a couple of pilot projects and my TED Talk t- talked about this experience. They want this material. I mean, these kids, these young people really want to learn this material. And we just have to give it to them in a in a way that makes sense to them and, and they feel empowered.
0: What was the name of your TED Talk in case people want to Google that?
1: It's, uh, it's on YouTube and it's called um, How to Protect uh, Your Kids from Toxic Chemicals.
0: Love that. Um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Cohen. I got just one last question for you. It's sort of like the, what everybody gets asked on the podcast. What does it mean to you to live a genius life?
1: Gosh, big question. Um, a genius life, similar to the smart human. I think we have things in common there, Max. Um, I think it's really about, um, you know, making decisions that make sense to you that you can Live with and it's not a challenge. It's a lifestyle. It's not a diet. It's a lifestyle And I think once you own and learn and own what you are doing Um, it becomes easier and it's not fearful fear is not a good way to go through life And i'm hoping that you know through what you teach and what I teach and others that what that it's it's easy to manage Good health is something we all deserve, you know
0: Couldn't agree more thank you so much for your time to all you guys out there in podcast land i value you as you know um appreciate you tuning in text me to let me know what you thought about this episode of the show you can do that by hitting up 310-299-9401 and i will catch you on the next episode peace